Let us pray as we turn to God's word this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll invite you to stand as you're able for the reading of scripture this morning. It comes from Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Now on that same day, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from the city of Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. One of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? Jesus asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some of the women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. We're going to come back to this wonderful, wonderful text in just a minute. But first, I don't think, at least from the pulpit, I've ever shared about my first date with my wife. Would you like to hear that story? Um, We were freshmen in college. And uh, we had been sort of socially dancing around each other, often in a bigger friend group uh, for about a month. And then those friend groups got a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller to the point where we were mostly just hanging out with each other. And so I decided it was time to ask her on an official date. It was a weeknight. It was late. So the only real option was a restaurant called Perkins. If you've never been to Minnesota, Perkins is like a maybe slightly classier IHOP. Uh, That's basically what it is. Very average cheap food, but most importantly for college students, it's open 24 hours a day. So we got in my super sweet two-door Ford Escort Sunsport car on a sub-zero January night in Minnesota. Uh, I could tell that Katie, my date, was freezing. She did not have a hat, and so I told her that there was a hat in the glove compartment. Amidst numerous campus parking tickets, uh, she found a Russian fur hat with ear flaps and put it on. 
This seemed completely normal to me for a first date, by the way, if you're trying to gauge how clueless I was at what was going on. Uh, we sat in a booth at Perkins. We ate pie a la mode. Uh, we had coffee. And after a little bit of time, I asked her, so what's your faith story? How many of you have done that on a first date before? Again, that seemed totally normal and not weird at all for me to ask that question. Uh, for many people, that would have been a swift end to the first date, and it would have been the only date. But if you know my wife, you know that I was actually feeding her soul without even knowing it because she likes to share and she likes to go deep in conversation as quickly as possible. So she opened up. She told me about her family and her church experience and her time in Africa and her pains and her joys. And she asked me about my faith story, and I did the same thing. Isn't it amazing? How it worked out. Here we are. But let me paint a different scenario for you on that first date. Imagine that on that date, Katie began to share her family, her childhood, her past, and I said, oh, you know what? I actually, I don't need any of that information. Let's just talk about you. And then she began to tell me about her high school experience, and I said, no, no, skip, not important. I just want to be here with you now. Let's just talk about the here and the now. And then what if she started telling me about the pains and struggles that she's gone through in her life? And I replied, yeah, 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 but I, I just really don't want to talk about that. I just want to talk about you. If I had said any of that to her, I'm completely positive that there would have been no second date and I wouldn't be here today. But the point is, you really can't know somebody without knowing their story. Where they come from. What brought them to where they are now. If I wasn't interested in her family, in her background, in her upbringing, then I really couldn't say that I was interested in her as a person. Somehow, followers of Jesus, Christians, often overlook this principle in their relationship with Jesus. Many Christians suppose that the New Testament, which recounts the life of Jesus and his teachings and those who followed him and were with him, many believe that that's enough to just build a relationship with him. The Old Testament background and Jewish sort of family history might be great for Jewish people, maybe for Bible scholars, but the New Testament is all we really need if we want to know who Jesus is. This is false. In fact, it's one of the oldest and most evergreen heresies in the history of our church. We're studying historical heresies in this series, and, and so we're learning about what the gospel of Jesus is and what the gospel of Jesus is not. We are also very aware through these heresies what the gospel is not, right? So today, we study the heresy called Marcionism. Marcionism. Marcionism is the heresy that asserts that the God of the Old Testament has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this heresy is named after a man, as many of them are, named Marcion. Uh, he was a native of of sort of the Black Sea region in the second century, very early on in the church's history. And I call it an evergreen heresy because of comments like this. Tell me if you've heard comments like this or similar to this before. I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament's a tyrant. Or I like Jesus, but I don't really like the Old Testament. Or have you heard this one? Jesus is all about love, not like the wrathful God of the Old Testament, not like the violent God of the Old Testament. 
Those are all views that were originally propagated by Marcion. And it's not only these sentiments, but others that convince me that Marcionism is still very alive and well today. Three things that, that uh, I'm thinking about when I think about that. Marcion, what he tended to do was split Jesus from God the Father. Split Jesus from God the Father, and I think we do that sometimes as well. We talked about this when we discussed the Christological heresies a few weeks ago. But Marcion went to great lengths to prove that Jesus had surpassed God the Father. That the Father shouldn't be the center of faith and worship any longer. That that's just Jesus. He rejected the God of the Old Testament outright in deference to the person of Jesus. He was so deeply troubled by the violence that he saw in the Old Testament of conquest, of judgment, of natural disasters, that he found God in the Old Testament offensible. Offensible. Jesus was not offensible to him. For him, anything that pulled our attention away from Jesus is a backsliding of faith. And the Old Testament and its genocidal, wrathful God are passe and should be avoided. Now, I don't know many people that go nearly as far as Marcion did in splitting Jesus from God the Father today, but I think it's still a temptation for us. We don't take seriously enough the words of Jesus when he says, I and the Father are one. Even well-intentioned movements like the red-letter gospel movement elevate Jesus over and against the rest of Scripture, and particularly the God of the Old Testament. We end up like the fictional version of Lars in college on his date saying, I don't care where you came from. I'm not interested. This is not a way to know somebody, friends. Let alone the most important person that we could possibly know, Jesus Christ. Second thing that Marcion did is he created his own version of the Bible, cutting out the parts that he didn't like. And I think we do this sometimes as well. There's actually a thing known as the Marcionite Bible. You can look it up. It's a collection of scripture that came together almost 200 years before the final canon of the Bible, what we, what we would call the Bible today. And since the God of the Old Testament was so offensible to Marcion, he took out all the scripture, every verse that related to the Old Testament or the Old Testament God in any way. So not surprisingly, his Bible is much, much shorter than the Bible that we have Uh, in our pews here today and in our homes. It contained no Old Testament at all, and it was broken into two parts. Uh, The Gospel of Jesus, which was basically a shorter version of the Gospel of Luke, only the Gospel of Luke. And then the epistles, some of the epistles, which were the writings of Paul that didn't quote or allude to the Old Testament. That was his Bible. Or the law, No, no language of the law either. Now, Marcion was not the only one in the history of the church to do this. Thomas Jefferson notably took a razor blade to several Bibles in his home, rearranging and pasting those verses together to create what's known as the Jefferson Bible. And it was a Bible that was devoid of what? Miracles. No miracles, no wonders, because he didn't believe in them. There's a long history of people creating versions of the Bible that fit their own sensibilities, their own beliefs. Marcion was simply the first and most notable to do it. I don't know many people today who would be so bold as to take razor blades to their Bibles in their homes. But I know many who actively avoid parts of the Bible that they don't like or that they don't understand. 
By the way, it is perfectly okay for you to say that there are certain passages of Scripture that seem more applicable or encouraging or instructive than others, but we do not want to be Marcionite in our view of Scripture. Marcion and Jefferson and Joseph Smith and many others, what they did is they simply dismissed the stuff that they didn't agree with or they, or they didn't understand, and that's a dangerous practice when we're encountering Scripture. We do not want to create our own versions of the Bible. Third thing that Marcin did is he asserted that the love of God was the only good news. God's love was the only good news, and we do that sometimes too. So many of Marcin's convictions and actions were a direct result of one belief, that God's goodness and love in Jesus Christ is the only thing that we need to say about him. That's it. In this... He bypasses God's judgment, God's correction, his sovereignty, his jealousy, his righteousness, his holiness, his correction, his conviction, and the obedience that he demands. Instead, Marcion said we should focus only on the compassionate and loving aspects of Jesus because that's the real good news. And we can do the same thing. Have you ever heard anyone say, Jesus just loved everyone all the time and that's a model for us as well? It is true that Jesus was love, um, but it's really reductionistic to say that, even in the life of Jesus. And I think it indicates that we're unwilling to wrestle with the aspects of God and Jesus that make us uncomfortable, that are harder for us to reconcile. So, these three things were sort of the foundation of Marcion and his belief, which was roundly denounced by basically every notable early church father of note. Um, I think you can hear things that you likely recognize as inherent dangers of this kind of belief, as I'm talking about them. But it's still worth considering this heresy by asking the question, yeah, but how did Jesus himself receive the Old Testament? What did he have to say about the Old Testament? Would Jesus ever agree with Marcy? Well, now's a good time to turn to that majestic text in Luke 24. Two disciples, one named Cleopas, the other one's unnamed, are walking from Jerusalem east to a town called Emmaus. They are not two of the 12 disciples who were with Jesus day in and day out, but they were followers of Jesus' ministry. They were likely returning to their home after Passover celebration. And the text tells us they were confused. They were in mourning. Jesus had just died on the cross, and their hope that he had been the Messiah had been shattered. But then it's really confusing because some of the women had told them that they went to the tomb and that Jesus wasn't there and maybe he was alive. But in the midst of that confusion, they had to go home because <laughs> the Passover was over. They're like, we got, we got to, I don't know, we got to walk back home. And they were confused and they were in mourning. And then the text tells us that Jesus himself, post-resurrection, shows up. And he walks with them on the road. But they don't recognize him. They're kept from recognizing him. And they explain what happened, all the things that had happened in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? He says, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer and die, uh, should suffer these things and then enter into glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them things about himself in all the scriptures. 
Did you catch that? Jesus interpreted for them all the things about him in Scripture. The only Scripture that was available to Jesus and his disciples at the time was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at the time. It's just the Old Testament. I've been asked before uh, by confirmation students in the past if I had a time machine and I could go back to any point in history, where would I go? I decided this week this is it. If I could magically learn fluency in Aramaic, this is where I would go. I want to be in this moment. I want to hear Jesus talk me through and walk me through the Hebrew scriptures. I want to hear him teach about Abraham and Moses and the prophets. I want to hear what passages he goes to. I want to hear the passion in his voice. Someday in glory, if, it worked, if, if this is how things work in glory, I, I will tell Jesus to reenact this for me. Needless to say, Jesus saw the Hebrew scriptures as his very backstory, essential to understanding who he is and understanding the gospel good news. It was the foundation for interpreting the whole of his life, and it happened on the road to, the, road to Emmaus. It was the way that he told them the good news about him. And not only did, did Jesus see the Old Testament as his story, but he cherished the Old Testament scriptures with his life. He directly cites Old Testament passages dozens of times, many of them from Psalms and Isaiah. Those are some of his favorites. But in his ministry, he goes all the way back to Genesis 1, and he also alludes to Malachi chapter 4. That's the first verse and the last verse of the Old Testament. If you calculate Jesus quoting the Old Testament or directly alluding to the Old Testament, 10% of everything that he said in his teachings and his discourse in Scripture were directly related to the Old Testament. And that's probably a conservative number. His words were saturated in the Old Testament text. He wasn't just reciting them, he was cherishing them. When he recites Scripture to the evil one in the desert, he does so with heart and deep conviction. Those are deeply embedded words in him. When he is on the cross, he recites several psalms. A, a scholar who I was just sitting with last week is, is utterly convinced that he wasn't just saying these, he was singing the entire psalm while he was on the cross. Deep worship from his very heart. He cherished the word. He cherished the Old Testament. And then not only Jesus, but the entirety of the New Testament authors, the book of Acts, the Pauline epistles, the general epistles, Revelation, they all deeply revere and root their convictions in the story of God in the Old Testament. There's not one of the epistles that doesn't do this. When Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed, the scripture he's talking about is the Old Testament. Marcionism com conveniently overlooks the New Testament view of the Old Testament which is nothing if not, if, if not um, worshipful and, and, and dependent and revering. Paul says it, Jesus says it, and Jesus shows it in his life and in his ministry. So, with all of this said, and with Jesus as our guide for these things, how do we practically avoid the trap of Marcionism and the ways in which it can seep in to our understanding of Scripture? Um, I have four things that I think will be helpful to me and to you. Um, the first is this. 
embrace scripture as one unified story. The witness of the church for the 1700 years since the biblical canon was established has been to see the Bible as one unified story from Genesis to Revelation. Yes, it's 66 books that are written by 40, over 40 authors written on three different continents over 1,600 years in three different languages in every conceivable genre, but it is one unified story. Uh, my lovely daughter, she has a habit uh, when she's watching a movie or a show to rewind or to skip to her favorite scenes in the movie and watch them over and over again. I don't know if your kids do this, any of you grandkids. Uh, but I'm constantly encouraging Lydia to watch the story, not the scene. To start at the beginning and go all the way through to watch that movie or that show from beginning to end. Because we need to understand the full story. We need to understand the biblical story from beginning to end to really receive it as the good news that it is. Which brings me to a second thing that will help us is to push through and wrestle with the parts of scripture that make you uneasy. If you can identify a part of scripture that makes you uneasy, go there. Push into it. I'm sure, if you're like me, you have your favorite spots in scripture that you love to return to, that you'd love to go back to over and over again. I have those. I return to certain psalms, to the story of Jacob, which I love, to the Sermon on the Mount, to the Upper Room Discourse in John, to Paul's sermon uh, in Athens. These are the things I go back to. And, and I think it's good to go back to places that, that are really encouraging to us and, and, and really speak to us. I think it's the right thing to do. But I, it's good to ask ourselves, do I repeatedly land in these places because I'm trying to avoid other parts of Scripture that make me uneasy? Do I avoid Joshua and Judges because the word conquest does not sit real well with me? Do I avoid numbers because, let's be honest, it's kind of dry, right? Do I avoid the Proverbs because it's kind of harder to read, it's not very linear, it's not a narrative? Do I avoid the minor prophets because I can't always remember what's going on? Do I avoid the parables of Jesus that make me uneasy? We're going to do that later in the year, by the way. Do I gloss over texts where Jesus shows anger? or other emotions, or talks about judgment, or talks about cursing? Do I avoid Galatians and read Philippians again because Paul is less cranky in Philippians? If all of Scripture is indeed an integral part of the story, that means that we need to push through some of the tough parts. We need to wrestle through those texts that are hard. And I'll tell you some of my Richest and most blessed times in God's word have been when I sit with an obscure text, a difficult text, long enough to let that, that text really speak to me and to understand it and to see God in it. Third thing is to pray to the full trinity in your prayers. Um, we should rightly focus on Jesus as the center of our faith. But we need to be wary of the Marcionite tendency to split Jesus from the Father. And I'll take it a step further. We need to celebrate the entire Trinity. God the Father, so prominently displayed in the Old Testament. Jesus the Son, our human brother, our model for life. 
and the Holy Spirit, which guides and leads the church and offers us the real presence of God here and now. One way to keep this balance and to make sure that we're not splitting that up is to pray to the fullness of the Trinity when we pray. You'll hear me from the pulpit and elsewhere at least trying to alternate my prayers to Father, to Son Jesus, and to the Holy Spirit in our corporate worship because I want to model that, that balance. I want to make sure that we're directing our prayers to the fullness of the Trinity. And I can do this with confidence because I know from the Gospels of Jesus that he would want us to direct our prayers to the fullness of the Trinity and not always just to him. And then the fourth thing that may be helpful for us, is each day sit with Jesus and be intent on really knowing him. Make it your life goal to know Jesus as well as you possibly can. Do not forsake Jesus by not caring about his backstory. Would you let him, just as he did with Cleopas and the other disciple, Open the fullness of scripture to you and from creation to Moses to the kings and the prophets, let him tell you his story, everything about it. Sit back and learn from him. Soak it all in. Go ahead and order another slice of pie so that you can sit a little bit longer. Let him tell you about his hope for the future. Truly know him in this way. This is my prayer for each and every one of you and for myself, that we might know him, that we might know the fullness of his story beginning to end, even the difficult parts, and that in knowing his story, we might grow to love him more and more and more. May it be so. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the fullness of your word. We pray that we might receive this word as a gift from you. That we might long to know the full story of Jesus. The Hebrew texts which form who he is, his words which speak to us, and his hope for the future which is held by the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you teach us how to read your scripture right and to embed it in our hearts, just as your son Jesus did, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, I'm going to invite our ushers forward for the giving of our tithes and our offerings. For those of you who are visitors with us or relatively new with us, there's never any obligation to give. If you call this church home, I invite you to give freely as the Lord has given to you.